Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. You're listening to Liberal Use of the Word, a podcast trying to fight the good fight against ignorance one concept at a time. I'm your host, Catherine, or Kat, if you know me from work, or Furnace, if you went to high school with me. This week, my partner in dismantling ignorance is none other than Louise. And Louise and I have known each other. Well, technically, we've known each other since we were uh, kids. Our grandparents have been best friends um, pretty much for their whole lives and grew up together in both Detroit and a small uh, cottage community across across the river in Canada. Uh, But she and I got really close starting, I would say, in... mm, sort of end of high school, beginning of college. And now she's one of my best friends. And I am very grateful that she agreed to come on and talk about one of her passions, uh, which is architecture. That's what she does for a living. That's what she's studying. And I'm going to be honest. uh, I did initially feel like I had no experience with architecture. And then I stumbled upon a few topics where unsurprisingly, I felt very strongly (laughs) about it, uh, as I typically do. And also, as I think many people do with architecture. So Louise um, has plenty of really interesting experiences herself that she talks about, including her dad's background in shipbuilding and how that's influenced her her growth and her path. We cover a lot of this in the episode, but I think that architecture is so important because it it's it's a part of our everyday lives and it's a part of so many different facets of our everyday life and we encounter it and we interact with it and we look at it all the time and uh you know, the space that it creates and the way that those spaces make us feel has a real impact on our days. And, you know, I'm currently uh, considering purchasing a home, um, whereas I've historically been renting and your space matters. Your space, the space where you spend a lot of time, whether that's at work or outside or in your home matters a lot. And I think that's been a lesson that all of us have learned uh, 80 times over in quarantine. Um, but it really matters how you use space and it can and it can have a, a tremendous impact on you. And it'll be interesting to see how that uh, changes, especially in terms of the workplace, but I think in, in general as a uh, we move on to our new normal post-COVID and historically, you know, the architecture trends in workplaces over the last uh, 10 to 20 years really leaned towards open offices. And that was great uh, right up until you had a respiratory pandemic. And then you realized, ooh, there's actually a downside to that. That's not just sometimes it's hard to focus or get work done. <laughs> um, so I'll be very interested. I think architecture uh, has existed for millennia, I would argue, uh, and it's going to continue for for a very good reason. That's enough of me talking, uh, so let's get into it. All right. Well, thank you for joining, Louise. Uh, welcome to the pod. Yeah, thank you for having me, my first podcast. <laughs> I feel so honored. <laughs> so. 
Thank well, you. I appreciate you coming on this. Um, I think that this is the first um, episode. This is the episode where I have the least amount of base knowledge going into this. So, A, I feel like you have that to your advantage because you could truly tell me whatever you want to tell me about design and architecture, and I have no ability <laughs> to refute it. Okay, um, I'm still learning about you know, everything, design and architecture every day. So I'm right there with you. Well, the other thing is you'll also be at an advantage because I will be infinitely less inclined to interrupt you and offer my own commentary. So this really feels like you're being set up for success far more than um, the other guests on the pod. Okay. And uh, just for our many, many listeners at home, in case they were wondering, uh, Louise, where are you? How, how, where are you quarantining, quarantining today from? So I, uh, I have recently returned to my childhood home in Annapolis, Maryland. So right now it's just me and my parents. It hasn't been this way since, I don't know, I left for college. So um yeah good times in the Would you, <laughs> do you feel like it is better worse or the same as the last time that you were there um I don't know I kind of think it's better because I'm a little less distracted this time so I'm like making my parents dinner which is really nice and like now that I have a newfound love for cooking in this quarantine like I'm happy to do it so Truly preaching to the choir here. Um, yeah, I'm like fully ready to abandon my day job and just start uh, a B&B out of my tiny two-bedroom apartment. <laughs> Nobody would want a B&B in. But I'm ready. The important thing is I now have the skills and, and I'm ready to have that. Well, um, I bet your parents are super happy to have you home. They are, but like the only thing is that we've been drinking every single day, like bottles of wine. And I'm like, I can't be around you guys anymore. Like it's them. It's not me. That's honestly, that's kind of how I feel too. I feel like when I go home, but I mean, I don't think this is exclusive to being at home. I think being at home emphasizes it for me, but I'm just like, generally speaking, not a big drinker, but when I'm at home, truly, that's always my first thought is like, wow. Uh, so you guys do this, like, Every day, every night, every day of the week, 52 weeks a year. I know it's crazy, it is crazy, but um, we digress. So, Louise is here to talk about. Um, I wrote in my notes design plus sign architecture because, again, me being a neophyte, I did not know what the correct term was for what you do and/or what you studied. Please correct us which which word do you use um i mean i think it's super fluid because design kind of encompasses like the whole shebang um so if you just want to refer to it as design that's fine um but me personally um i will be starting my masters in interior architecture so it kind of like a little more focused on structural and like sculptural stuff if you want to like kind of associate architecture with that um but yeah let's talk about both because they go hand in hand so um first i'd like to formally congratulate you on your master's program uh remember when you applied and you were 
convinced that you were not going to get in and regretted telling people because you were so convinced you weren't going to get in. I know. I applied and I told everyone like the day I sent my application in, not thinking, oh, this could maybe be really embarrassing if I don't get in. But But it wasn't. Yeah. There you go. Well, I'm uh, really relieved to hear you say that because I only looked up the definition for architecture. So design is dead to us uh, for the time being. So uh, this is the part of the pod where we compare what the experts at dictionary.com Okay. Experts perhaps uh, being used in quotation marks, uh, how they define this term compared to how you define it. So I'm interested. I'm interested. This was actually a really interesting term because normally I just use the first definition or normally there's only one. And actually they had two. And I really like both of them, although they come at it from, from two very different directions. So the first definition of architecture is the profession of designing buildings, open areas, communities, and other artificial constructions and environments, usually with some regard to aesthetic effect. Ooh, some. Only, only some. Architecture often includes design or selection of furnishings and decorations, supervision of construction work, and the examination, restoration, or remodeling of existing buildings. So that was... That was somebody trying to meet their word quota. That was definition right. one. I mean, that's a good definition for sure. You know? Very comprehensive. It, you'd it. get full points on the SAT mm-hmm. for that one. The other one is much briefer, but I just really like it. Uh, it just says the character or style of building. Okay. Um, I Obviously, I, I agree with the first one in the sense that it's more than just buildings, but I really love the emphasis on character and style. Which is very true because that, um, I'll talk about that a little later, but is um, kind of the defining quality of architecture, I think. I mean, I think it's hard to actually define architecture because you can put a literal definition on it, which is kind of like that first one. Um, But to me, architecture is kind of like the built image of ourselves and like the built image of our world. Um, And in a world where uh, we have fluid and kind of like virtual values, architecture always endures. And it's kind of like the one thing that we're leaving behind that's the most important. And it's a a reflection of the times, um, of culture, of history. And in some senses, it's a time capsule. In others, it's kind of a wishful image of what the future can be. So I don't know, like, it's really hard to define. And it's not just architecture that is created by humans. There's architecture found in nature. Um, You look at like a pine cone or the inside of a nautilus shell, um, a bird's nest, a spider web, like these things are designed for specific functions and their form will always follow their function and that I think is the most beautiful part about architecture um so it really depends on the lens you're looking through it um but there are so many ways to describe it I mean I feel like that's that's the end of the pod guys I hope you <laughs> you all enjoyed it were you was that written down in advance or is that just I, am, I am a product of a liberal arts education Ooh, <laughs> and your parents got their money worth that was 
amazing. That was, I'm doing the chef's kiss for the people listening to. I mean, I, I hope it would live up to some sort of dictionary defined. Wow. Um, Louise's mom is also a communications expert. And so clearly that gene did not skip, uh, did not skip her. That is so beautiful. And I love the point around architecture found in nature. You know, I don't think of the way that uh, things, I, you know, I'm naturally always inclined towards the animal world specifically. So like, I don't always think of the sort of houses or homes that animals build for themselves as architecture, but I love that. I love, now I want to sort of put that more formal lens on it. Once you have kind of discovered that that's what it can be, like just look around and you'll, you'll just like, your mind will be blown. Um, And actually I think that um, my, I guess, my initial interest in architecture or not interest, but passion started from nature. When I was young, I would like look at driftwood and like different plants and rocks, um, just things found in nature. And for some reason I couldn't really define it when I was, when I was younger, but I would be like, this would be such a, like, like a great beam in like a building or like, I don't know. It's just, um, I would translate things that I found in nature, um, to be used in forms basically. And it's not as like smart as it sounds. It's really not. Um, but I think a lot of designers kind of like nature is their muse in a sense. Well, that's a perfect segue to what my first question was going to be, which is just more around like, what's your personal experience with with architecture and, and how did you get interested in it? Obviously, I feel like plenty of people have a passing interest in the sense that they can look at a house or a room or some sort of constructed uh, object and say whether or not they think they like it. Right. But very few people actually end up making this career and really want to learn like the nitty gritty of how all of that comes together. Yeah. And I think that that's true because, um, again, when I was really young, like I had all of these like creative inclinations and my dad obviously, um, was a huge part of that because he, um, grew up in the islands and basically made shipbuilding his life. Um, and I get a lot of his creativity, like he's always been super encouraging, but um, no one really ever told me like, as a young woman, oh, like what you're interested in is actually called architecture. Like they were always like, oh, you just have such a good eye. Like, you know how to make things look really good. But um, I didn't actually know what to call my passion until I hit like high school, college. And then I was like, oh, (laughs) this is going to be my career for sure. Like I, I really can't picture myself doing anything else. It's, it's less of, it's almost like a, um, like an impulse, like a design impulse. When I see a space, I view it through an architectural lens. Um, and it's just how I have always seen the world. And I don't know if that's something I was just born with or something that you know, I was shaped by, um, like through my dad, but, uh, I was pretty, pretty set on doing this 
when I was young and I feel lucky I knew. So. Yeah, I was really curious to know, and I'd love for uh, you to just give a little bit more context to Mm -hmm. the people that are not fortunate enough to (laughs) know Peter Boudreaux and or the Amherst Point community, which is how Louise and I um, have grown up knowing each other. But I I did want to, so I'd love for you to share a little bit more around what specifically your dad does. But that was obviously one of the things that I thought of in terms of, I wonder how that influenced your um, sort of proclivity towards design and, and creative endeavors in general, because again, I feel like his background and his work is pretty unique. Um, and it's very much a part of your family's life. It's, it's very present. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, so for example, um, just to give some more context, my my dad, when he was little, going to boarding school in Nova Scotia, um, and then before that in St. Lucia, two very different climates, um, he would be in class and he would be building little model boats at his desk and he would get yelled at all the time. And actually once he was beaten with a ruler because he went to like a convent and the nuns were like brutal, apparently. But anyway, back back on on track here. Um, so that like kind of just joyous act of like creating things we would do together when I was growing up. We would draw together. Um, I would help him with projects on the boat, and I mean that was hard work because we would be varnishing an entire wooden sailboat basically. And then he's teaching me all these little um, rules of being like a a craftsman and a woodworker, which also was a huge part of his career because um, in addition to building the boats, he was sailing the boats as well. He he was the captain. So um, in that sense, he was, he knew the boat, he knew how it was built, how it could perform. And I think that that kind of, spark something in me as well because it's one thing to like have something look fantastic but when you know that it's designed to perform the way that it looks the way it looks is a reflection of its performance it's a machine um it's even more beautiful and it makes sense so if you ever look at the way um a ship's interior is designed there's no excess excess space. Everything is there for a reason, for a purpose. And, um, you know, you don't get lost. It's intuitive when you're going in different rooms down below. Um, and for me, that's been a struggle um, because that's where, like, the, the real thought in the work comes in in terms of architecture is, does it make sense? Is it intuitive? It's not um, intended to be something where you just throw lipstick on it, but everything falls apart. Um, there's no point there. So, you know, that's that's the hard work. That is such a great. Um, that's such a great connection. I love that thinking about how important form form is and how not not just important from yeah, I want to create a good product but obviously in shipbuilding it's a 
direct safety concern, right? Like you need all of these things to work um, the way that they're supposed to, because a lot of the times people are going to be on their own uh, if things go awry. So um, I love that connection of, of how important form is to, or sorry, function is to, to form and how you design things. And certainly there's, I feel like that's one of, uh, that's always one of like our parents, uh, mutual, although I'm sure it's more with, uh, our moms who are also good friends for listeners of the pod. Um, biggest complaints about architecture today, you know, it's just like that age old, like they don't make them like they used to anymore. It's just like, Oh, shoddy last minute construction, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's just like, it goes on and on. Um, and I, I mean, do you think that that's actually, do you think it's actually any more prevalent today? Or do you think that's just one of those things that like every generation thinks that the next generation is doing a, it's not to say that those don't exist. Certainly they do. But do you think it's actually any more pronounced in recent architecture? Um, here's the thing. I think um, there's really, really good architecture and there is just some really, really, really bad architecture. Um, and right now with my job, I'm doing interior design for a lot of high profile corporate clients. Um, and sometimes these buildings are like a little bit older, nothing historic, but, um, when I'm trying to like space plan in the interior and lay out like different room types and different like furniture setups, um, there's so much wasted space and things that don't make sense in the actual architecture and it throws off the entire, um, composition of the inside. So for me wanting to get into interior architecture specifically, um, it's so everything can be as fluid and harmonious as possible because you're creating an environment for people who are spending the majority of their lives indoor. Um, so you have to make it count. And it's not just something that looks beautiful. It's something that is supporting people's emotional well-being, their physical well-being. And it really um, is important to like have those elements line up. Otherwise, you kind of have some garbage in some cases. So, uh, yeah. So, but do you think, do you, but do you think that it's more prevalent now than it was in previous generations? Or do you think there's, that's always true to a certain extent and it's just like people's nostalgia to a certain extent, but at the same time, um, I think now because we live in a capitalist economy, people are building buildings and developments, um, not to express some sort of architectural like feat, but to make money, to gentrify quickly. And um, when that's the case, I don't think things are thought out as deeply. And a lot of times there's no intention behind the design. It's just like, how many people are we able to fit in here? And that's when you see the really, really bad architecture. Um, And I would include a lot of residential development in that category of bad architecture like when you're driving through farmland and you see these cookie cutter houses that's really really bad 
architecture. It like hurts my soul to see, to see that. Whereas um, you could build something that is somehow tied to that farmland, like that is a reflection of the space and creates a sense of place rather than something that sticks out and you, you think as soon as you see it, oh, this is not supposed to be there. That's, mm. that's bad architecture. And I do think that it's more prevalent now than it was in the past. Yeah. The question, um, I think two, two things that you just made me think of one is the fact that when it's, when it's so cookie cutter, you do, you don't have a sense of place. You literally think like I could be anywhere. Exactly. If you were blindfolded and someone drove you like 200 miles away, you would still see see the same type of construction and you wouldn't know like that you had moved. And that I think is probably what's killing like design around the world are these um, just thoughtless developments. And it's like, if we want to leave a lasting impact and like bring communi- communities together, if we want to like create sustainable design that doesn't fight with the land or the place that it's at, um, then more thought needs to go into it. Yeah. And that touches on, um, I mean, I couldn't agree with that more. And I feel like in the context of climate change and rapid urbanization, I just feel like that's more and more important every day. One of the other things on the, on the sort of cookie cutter housing, um, sort of debate that is an eternal debate between myself and my father. And I'm interested to know if you um, also with a family that is in a lot of Michigan or grew up in, in Michigan culture shares is I feel like having grown up in New England, even though in the nineties and two thousands, even though yes, there is a lot of colonial architecture and historical architecture because Boston has been uh, has existed for so long. There's such a huge diversity in the types of architecture, and I am really drawn to that. And I really love it. I mean, I love when each neighborhood sort of has their own style of architecture. But I don't mind people doing sort of funky or different things. I feel like the the sort of cookie cutter and blending in thing is very unattractive to me. And I feel like, not that that appeals to my dad, but when he's in Michigan, we always have debates over like, he doesn't like when people build houses that like stand out in in the suburban neighborhood. And I'm like, oh my God, they're living in the suburbs. This is like the only thing they have going for them to distinguish their house. Like they're already sort of designed to look to your earlier point, like to look like you could be anywhere in any of the suburbs, like let them add like a weird window or a third story. Yeah. I mean, I think there are like three points to that whole idea is that one, um, people have always been hesitant to like accept new, like, kind of not groundbreaking, but any sort of new design like into society. There's always been some sort of pushback because it strays from tradition and people, you know, are afraid of what this new design will do to to culture and society. 
But I mean, that's what changes. And I think we're seeing it more now. And my parents do the same thing. Um, anytime there's a, a less traditional house that pops up in our neighborhood, it's like a whole conversation. But the point is, like, if it brings those people joy, like, just let it happen. Um, and I think also when people see um, change from like the traditional one house looks the same as the other, it's kind of um, a reaction of, uh, sorry, I just completely lost my spot. So like edit this whole thing out. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> I'm done. No, there. you had a good, no, that was good. I that did. I, good. I had such a good good um like when people dis when people when people build something or create something that stands out and yeah okay that's my point um people are afraid to lose order you know I think what's really satisfying about houses that kind of complement each each other because they're so similar is that it gives the illusion of order and structure and then when you have that one guy on the block who has like a bright yellow house that, you know, is going against everything else, people fear that they're losing that order. So it kind of is like um, a psychological uh, reaction. And I think architecture, more than people realize, has, has those effects on people. And I think it scares people a little bit. One of the downsides of growing up in a historical neighborhood in Salem, Mass, which is where I grew up, uh, I remember there was a story about this uh, house in a historical neighborhood that had painted their house tangerine orange. And that was not on the historical register of colors that were approved for that neighborhood. And it was like this whole thing. And because they're historical houses, they're really close to each other. And so their neighbor was was saying things of, you know, I look out my window and it's like, all I can see, it's just black. Like, I, it's so imprinted in it my mind. People, people get offended, especially with orange, because they say it's aggressive, but it's actually my favorite color, so. Well, it was just more one of those things where I was like, okay, I don't actually feel like a paint color from another, uh, the outside of someone's house that is across you know, the way from yours, I don't, there's no way it's actually blinding. Like what's the root, um, what's the root sort of psychological challenge here. And I just read, I won't be able to, uh, do a good job paraphrasing it, but I'm reading this book called weird by Olga Kazan. And it's, uh, I think the subtitle is the benefits of being an outsider in an insider's world. As my sister says, that's my favorite genre of books that's I've read like every book on how being weird and not fitting in is a good, <laughs> it's I a love good thing genre, I love it. um truly if you ever want to read one I have every one of those books that's ever been okay I'll take you up on it yeah so I'm reading this book and in it they talk about how there's a new wave of behavioral psychology that says that people, one of the reasons why people don't like things that are different from them, whether that's people, ideas, objects, is it comes from a subconscious fear of disease and how like historically people that didn't look like you or didn't sound like you or had different customs um, may have like come from a faraway place and or may have behaviors that would have put you and your community more at risk for disease. Um, it's really interesting. And 
I don't think that's the be all end all solution, but I agree. There's always, it, there's there is some psychological trigger because it's, it's just like so the way that someone else designs their house, unless they're blocking your view or something has no impact on your life whatsoever. So why do you get this upset about it? You do have a point there in terms of um, that psychological reaction because uh, when you look at these like global cities, usually those are the ones that have the most diversity in architecture. So um, those cities are more progressive in the sense that they're kind of ac accepting not only of people physically, but uh, of ideas, architecture, culture, and those are some of my favorite cities to be. And I think Boston is one of those places because my favorite thing about looking at Boston's skyline is you see some really, really old, like, buildings, beginning of our country, you know? And then you see these new super contemporary buildings that have just popped up within the last 10 years. And they don't clash. It's actually, like, this beautiful composition of old and new and like those are the best cities i think i love seeing like a super super old building that is next to just like a wall of glass it's like it's fascinating and it's like again it's a a record it's a timeline of human history and um i think we have to remember that when we are presented with ideas that we're uncomfortable with in terms of architecture for the future. Um, for example, obviously I'm sure many of us have been following the Notre Dame spire that collapsed mm -hmm. last year. Yeah, last year. Oh my April. God, that could have been in 2020. Who even remembers? <laughs> like, I know. Um, but there's this whole debate on if they should just rebuild it the way that it always has been traditionally, or if now would be the time where we could do something totally different that's reflective of our time. Um, and I don't necessarily think that there's a right answer for that. Um, but I do think that whatever they decide, there needs to be context and it should always tie into sense of place and um, using traditional material, you know, something that um is compatible so it's a hard question and like there will always be that question that we face with architecture but it's fun to debate about oh totally and when you're in a city like boston you have so much to debate like i getting back to the the question of good and bad <laughs> architecture uh even though i know it was technically in style at the time i know i am not alone in thinking that like boston city hall and the other examples of 1980s like brutalism is the yeah. ugliest thing that has ever happened to the world and i feel like the architects of the 1980s should be like sitting in a corner with a dunce cap on their head because those things look there is n like there is no version of there's no lens that I can put on where I can be empathetic and like see why it was attractive at any point. It's just like here are hunks of concrete moving over that. you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, here's the thing though. I mean, you gotta like place yourselves in their shoes because especially with 
brutalist architecture, there is a lot of principle behind that, whether you realize it or not. Yes, tell me, I'm trying to be more empathetic, although I'm doing a bad job. So tell me what were some of the, why were they doing that? So brutalist is like, you notice the material and the weight associated. It may not be a lot of people's style, but think about it like art. It starts a dialogue. And that's the whole point of art, you know, is to start a dialogue. And whether it's the ugliest building or not in Boston, it is the most talked about building in Boston. And so there you go. There you go. So, I mean, it kind of is an ugly duckling. The debate on if it should exist anymore, like, would the city be the same without it? And again, it's that um, it's a reflection of the times, of the principles that were expressed and important back then. And, you know, it, it adds to the, the eclectiveness. Is that a word, eclectiveness? Oh, sure. I don't have the dictionary.com website open right now, so it's a free for all. Yeah, so it, it adds to the diversity of the city. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, the more physical, um, like historical record we have where you can like go up and touch it, the better. Well, and I think also as much as I don't necessarily look at it and think, oh my God, I wish something else was there. I just think like, I wish that they had used color or put in a green space or like windows that made it not look like a prison but (laughs) anytime you walk past it you're thinking about it though yes but but I think but what I was gonna say is like as much as there are things that I would like to change about it I don't think of like what would you want instead like what would that space look like and feel like if you didn't have that right like well I wouldn't want it to be replaced with the current architect you know like even if I don't really like it, if I can't think of an alternative that I like more, then I'm pro- it's probably still there for a reason. I mean, truly, I'm sure there were, I just feel like there, it's not that I dislike all 1980s architecture. It's just very specifically. Uh, it was an interesting era. Brutalism. Sure. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot going on in the 80s. So yeah. I'm not wildly surprised <laughs> that that was what, uh, what came out of it. Um one of the and and that brings up you know there's two there's well there's one really important thing that for me that brings up so in uh my past life as a scholar of uh political science i really got into this whole concept of memorial studies and it's talking about like how do societies remember things and what's the collective narrative Around then, I think architecture is a, and architecture is definitely a really important part of that. And like my focus at the time, um, and sort of since then, has always been on like the really extreme part of uh, memorial studies. So like genocides and like mass atrocities, and how do you remember those? Um, and there's this really interesting debate at Auschwitz because a lot of the buildings in the old concentration camp, which is now a museum. Uh, have begun to fall apart. And there's this eternal debate of should we preserve them or should we let nature sort of take them away or should we have destroyed them in the first place, right? And some people sort of at the time when World War II is ending and in many cases, uh, people just sort of take that decision into their own hands and they say like, I can't bear to look at this. It just brings back too many memories and then they just destroy it. And you don't really get to have that like collective discussion <laughs> around what the right. what the best thing um 
would be to do around that. But I mean, what do you think about that? That question of, is it better to keep it the way it was or turn it into something new? I think that's a really good question, especially when it comes to memorials, because there's one idea of thought where it's like, okay, this is this could be a historical site and do we preserve purely out of historical purposes? But then when you take in the people into account, um, it becomes deeper than that and it becomes a bigger issue. And with memorials, sometimes it doesn't even have to do with architecture. It's more about sense of place and preserving a place for people to go and either mourn or just like observe um, and just be in that place to remember. Like sometimes memorials will just be an empty space, a field or like a simple stone or a platform. And personally, I think some of those are the most powerful memorials because it leaves you alone as someone interacting with this place to be with your thoughts and for you to kind of like spiritually like build your own environment there. So sometimes simple is better. But then like the 9-11 memorial, for example, having that architecture kind of enhances your emotions that are existing already and kind of like helps you express them visually in a way that you, you know, might have not been able to do otherwise. Um, I just know that it's a really sensitive subject for mankind as a whole. And I don't know if I would be able to be a memorial architect because that's a lot of moral responsibility you have because people get angry if they feel that that place has been used or expressed or demolished in an unfavorable way. Yeah, and I'm really glad that you mentioned them. the 9-11 Memorial is a really interesting example of trying to sort of do both. So they yeah. kept sort of the rock foundations um, from the original towers and they built a new space. And yeah, it's that question of, do you want to shape? How much do you want to influence how people, what people's experience are? Do you want to leave just an open space and let people feel whatever they're feeling and focus on whatever they're focusing on and leave with whatever impression they have? Or do you want to really try and like cultivate that and lead them to a specific conclusion or make sure that they have specific experiences? And I, I could truly talk about this forever because I think it's so interesting and there is never the right answer. Um, I know that I'm sure that you studied, you know, the Vietnam War Memorial was a classic like turning point in memorial architecture. Um, For those who don't know the backstory to it, there was an open uh, contest for the design for the Vietnam War Memorial in the U.S. And this very young girl, Maya Lin, if I remember her first name correctly, um, won, and she designed uh, this shape that sort of looks like, it almost looks like a sort of angled boomerang that goes into the ground, and it gets thicker as you go deeper into the boomerang, which is meant to reflect how more and more uh, Americans died as the war went on, and so it sort of starts thin and then gets bigger and then gets thin again. Uh, around the angle and it has the list of uh, people who died on it. And it was really controversial when it came out for for two reasons. One was because people felt like it looked like a scar and there were, to your, to your point around people getting angry, you know, 
Vietnam War veterans and their families felt like they had already been really disrespected and neglected and people didn't really want to deal with it. And so it felt like it was sort of a slap in the face. Uh, And it also was one of the first memorials to use black granite. And people felt really strongly about that. And again, they felt like, oh, we're getting like the, you know, bum end of the stick on on the kind of memorial materials. Normally we use white stuff and it's very much around like glory and honor. And this feels sad and depressing and like we're trying to hide it. Um, But, you know, again, like you said before around change, now it's like the gold standard in memorial uh, design is to start off with like darker granite. Very few memorials now are done in in lighter colors. And it's like such a brilliant, innovative design. And, you know, it started a dialogue and it always has a dialogue. And a lot of people who... um, who go have like very moving experiences. And even though, you know, it felt like this whole thing, really, it's just, it, you know, it's just a slab of granite. There is, there's a few things that if you look into the details, you can maybe pick up on, but you know, there's no audio narrative. There's no, uh, your mind is sort of allowed to go wherever it goes as you walk along it. So I think it's a great example. Yeah. And I also think kind of continuing this conversation about, emotion in architecture. I think that it is, um, aside from just art in general, which is hard to define, um, it's something that is physical, but also can like create so much emotional turmoil in human beings and even in animals in the way that like we all behave. And um, I love that it has power over people in a way where like people don't have that power over people. Um, So it's kind of like this weird, like non-existent, but physical force, if that makes sense. And it's something that cannot be replicated. And that is why I love, uh, I, I love architecture. That sounds so cheesy now that I... No, but I know. I mean, look, I I was trying to... uh, I was debating whether I was going to ask you about this, but since we're already steeped in controversy, you know, for me, one of the other things that comes up outside of memorial studies is gentrification. And I think that's a perfect example. Like, talk about something that people get very emotional about and sparks many dialogues. Like, what's what's your take? Oh, that's like a hard. <laughs> that's just really, hard. just really quick off the top of your head. What do you think about gentrification? I have mixed emotions about gentr- gentrification because I am all for um, kind of the reemergence and renaissance of neighborhoods, but I don't believe that in order to do that, you need to put people out. I think it's more gentrification. Um, is more than just building physically. Um, It's kind of erasing a generation of history and memory and dialogue. Um, And I don't, I don't think that it is productive. I think we need to be building community spaces that in turn will make neighborhoods stronger um, and more unified. But I don't necessarily think that it, you need to displace people. Like, I I truly can't imagine if I had a family home in in our family for generations, if one day we just weren't able to 
afford to take care of it or even live there. I, I mean, like the sadness associated with gentrification is just like the, the worst thing that development is doing. Um, and I think that we need all these like young designers kind of like emerging into the field to really address this issue. And you and I know like this is going on in Detroit, which is a city that is, you know, close to us and our families and um, the amount of people that are becoming displaced. I mean, the city is losing its life in some areas, like the life of a city comes down to its people. Um, and if those people have nowhere to go and all their resources are stripped, you know, that that is the beginning of a dying city. So um, design and architecture, it needs to speak to these issues. It doesn't need to like eccentrify like all this messiness around gentrification. But um, I don't know. It, I mean... That's a well, big I mean, Detroit, yeah, if we really want to just go straight into the most controversial part or the most complicated part of the most complicated issue. Yeah, I mean, Detroit, right? Like, what do you do with, you know, what do you do with houses that have been abandoned? I have read so many articles on that because I think it's such an interesting question like in the short term it definitely you know can feel safer to some i i definitely understand feeling uh concerned about just having a space that's empty and that nobody's using for uh an extended period of time and in the long run it's not like those buildings get raised and then like replicas of them are built as when they're raised like that era of architecture is gone from that spot and it's not going to be brought back unless some bajillionaire feels really strongly about it and like knocks down the new house they build and then rebuilds it in the old style i think that for architects there is some moral obligation to design responsibly and that means taking into consideration all areas surrounding your site um, and how it's going to like affect families and neighborhoods and environments. And um, I don't believe that a lot of architects and developers are responsible necessarily. And I think when you're going into the field, it's something that you have to remember. And it's lost in the day-to-day for sure, because day-to-day you're just trying to get through each hour you're trying to make your your deadlines you're trying to please your client and you're trying to make money but like architects are the ones who are building our environment and we we do need to display some moral guidance when we're doing these things otherwise what would the world be well and i think one of the you know for me it's a classic you know i think gentrification is caused by many things will be solved by many things. But that point around really understanding the community and the impact that it's going to have, and also like the context and the history um, of the, the buildings for me, when I think about solutions, you know, one of the easiest ones is making sure that some of that, the people on the team are from the neighborhood or from the community that, uh, you know, the the building is going on. And it makes me think of like, well, who makes up the architectural teams? Like, who is fu- who is funding 
architecture or who's funding like development and who are the people that are making those design decisions? Because if they're people that are from the communities and then they already have the context, then you don't have to, you can, you know, work to meet your deadline and trust that if one of these decisions is going to potentially negatively impact the community, that person are, is already thinking of that or is already aware of that. And it just makes it a lot it makes it a lot easier to avoid those and it makes it a lot harder to, and on the flip side, I think it, my general impression is that the current structure, which I want you to correct me or, or give your take on it, is not always made up of, is predominantly not made up of people from the communities where the building is going on, which makes it very uh, easy to start doing that kind of harm or to let that kind of harm happen with unknowingly. No, you're totally right. I think more times than not, teams are not made out of people who have dwelled in those areas or have any sort of connection to that place. And again, it's sense of place that you're really trying to preserve when you're fighting with gentrification. And um, I think some of the most successful projects are with organizations who have ties to that area. Um, because you just need to understand the needs and the connection and how um, that place is connected to the other neighborhoods around the city. Because when you think of a city as a whole, it's like an organism. And when parts of that start to die, um, it's like a plant that begins losing its leaves. You know, It cannot be healthy if the core, core places in that city are not strong. Um, not that I'm a city planner or in politics or anything like that, but it, it does help when you kind of like compare to a living creature because a city is in a way very similar. Uh, I mean, I'd like, I'd be fine with you being a city planner or a politician. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have family, no clue what the qualifications are. But. Yeah. My mom wants me to become governor of Detroit and uh, or mayor of Detroit. I was going to say, I like that she's creating a whole new title for your political career. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think maybe later in life when I'm more qualified and seasoned about the ways of life. But um, for now, I'm just going to stick to my design endeavors and just live my life one day at a time. I mean, I think you are head. I love all of your thinking, and I would be very proud to live in a city that was designed by you. I think it would be oh, an amazing you. place. Thank you. Well, I feel like on that very positive note about your future career um, as governor of Detroit, you heard it first <laughs> <laughs> on the pod. Um, I know we're we're almost up, and I like to always ask uh, people at the end of the discussion what are some of the biggest misconceptions about architecture and what do you feel like are some of the most underrated or underappreciated parts of it okay so I'm going to start with the second question first and I think you know this about me um, but for everyone else I truly believe and this is a principle in my life it's not just applicable to architecture but Kind of everything else to keep my head level is that um, less is more. And I'm like so about the minimalist lifestyle because it really just kind of opens up space for the essentials. 
and it keeps you grounded and keeps you sane. And um, I think being distracted by clutter in architecture, in your life, in your head, it's just like kind of a toxic cycle. Um, so yeah, minimalist lifestyle, highly recommend. I'm not like crazy minimalist, but um, for those that know me, they know, they know what I'm talking about. Yeah, you're not like Kim and Kanye's house, which truly I feel like there are a hundred thousand ghosts that live in that oh, absolutely. at any given moment. <laughs> I like feel I feel goosebumps when I look at pictures of their house on social media. That is minimalism like on steroids. Because there's anxiety that's sprung from not having enough surrounding you. But I believe like just have the things that you love and the things that you need. Um, and then everything else you can do without just get rid of it. And um, that's structurally as well. Like I hate seeing buildings with just ornamentation all over the place where it's unnecessary and it doesn't serve a purpose. That's my pet peeve. So that is my answer to your second question. What is underrated? Um, and then I guess another misconception about architecture and design in general, um, and this is one of my pet peeves as well, is when people mistake interior decorating with interior design. Because interior decorating is kind of like staging and um, like miscellaneous ancillary things after the fact. But design is the foundation, it's the core. Um, It's kind of like your skeleton. And if something is like really, really well designed, it's different than if it's decorated. Um, so when when I say, oh, I'm an interior designer, people are like, oh, my gosh, you're a decorator. I'm like, no, not at all. Like, I love to do that stuff, but there is a huge difference. Well, um, thank you very much. I would like to offer... Um, you the opportunity to plug whatever you want to plug and let the good people of the pod know where you want to be found if someone is really uh, interested in continuing the conversation with you. Okay, I would love that. Um, well, thank you for having me. And if anyone has any questions about interior design or architecture, um, you can find me at my Insta page. Louise Boudreaux, very simple. Um, And I just post things that inspire me and a few like conceptual things that I'm working on right now. But there will be more content coming soon as I will be digging deeply into my master's program in August. So if you feel like learning more, just give me a follow. But I can also personally vouch uh, Louise has unbelievable design skills. I've seen it with my own eyes many a time, and I'm constantly flooding her inbox with uh, design Instagram posts. And I love uh, she has a very discerning eye, and I really appreciate it. And nothing makes me happier than when we are on the same page around a design aesthetic. <laughs> yes, I love that. Truly, that's a very underrated part of design, I feel like, is uh, not as an expert, but for the sort of user consumer side, is when you're working with somebody who just gets 
like the direction that you, the the vibe that you're going for it, or makes, like, it makes it so much easier it turns oh. it in from a night it turns it from a nightmare into something that's actually fun to do um i was showing fabric samples to a client one day and um they were looking at them inside out so there really are some people that have zero zero design intuition <laughs> but it's okay Ooh. that's what i'm here for you know that is an opportunity for uh tact and diplomacy at a level that i do not know that i possess <laughs> Right. Bless you. Um, well, thank you so much, Louise, for joining us. Uh, one day, a thousand years from now, we will do a follow-up episode and it will be in person and we will be mask-free and just like uh, right on top of each other and sharing a straw and <laughs> living our best lives. Uh, I look forward to that moment. Thank you. Bye. Bye.